I want to turn this morning to the to begin with just to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, a very familiar text I know, but something I want to find as a launching off place this morning. Paul, considering the work of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous work of quickening those who are dead in trespasses and in sins, each one of his, uh, his elect children sometime between their conception and their death is going to experience this work of the Holy Spirit, something that God does immediately, that is without means, without instrumentality. God brings life to that which is dead. And Paul emphasizes this by sharing with us in the first chapter that it's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that in fact quickens every one of his children from a death in sin. Before that, uh, that quickening work, we're all alike in sin. Verse 2 and 3 tell us that we walked according to the course of this world, just like everyone else. We uh, walked after the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. We had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul paints a pretty bleak picture here, and this is every one of us. We're dead. We have no hope. There is no life. There is no hope of coming to God in any way, shape, or form. And then verse 4 begins with the blessed expression, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace are you saved? By grace are you saved? Paul exalts the grace of God as he does throughout this letter and every other letter, every epistle that he writes. By grace are you saved. And it's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I want to just address for a little while this morning the concept of good works. And more specifically, the, the question of what, how, wor how works relate to our life in Christ, to our relationship with Christ, and to our position as ambassadors for Christ in this world. The Apostle Paul, on the one hand, states here, by inspiration directed by God, that you are saved by grace. Through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our works, he says, have nothing to do with our salvation, nothing to do with our deliverance into a life in Christ, our relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet Paul, at the same time as he excludes boasting, he does nothing to exclude the necessity of good works. In fact, he says this work of Jesus Christ, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained or prepared that we should walk in them. 
This morning uh, in the Bible study, we read a verse of Scripture which says that the Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's a thorough furnisher to every good work. That is, the Scripture helps us to do good works, helps us to understand good works, to walk in good works. But it's very important that we not view our doing, our works, as being in any way contradictory to the grace of God in our experience. It's not about our works opposed to grace. And it's not a question of whether we're saved by grace or saved by works, but rather a question of how the grace of God begets good works. How the grace of God brings about that which is good in our lives. And to understand that, we have to understand that a good work is not necessarily what you and I may initially think is good. We can look around the world and we can see a lot of things that are done, that are charitable, that seem to be kind, that seem to be caring for other people. And we can define those things in our minds as good. But the scripture limits that definition and makes us realize that it's only good if it's done for the glory of God. There's nothing good that can be done apart from the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why it's necessary that the grace of God work in our lives before there can be any good. There is no good thing apart from Jesus Christ. And therefore, a good work, a good deed, an evidence that we might point to that someone's a good person must be understood through the blood of Jesus Christ applied in that person's life. That person is working, he's doing because of Jesus Christ in him. And then and only then is any work a good work. The Jews were very confused on this principle. You see, they'd been established under the law and they trusted in the law and they believed that the law of God defined what was good, what was right. And that's why a notable Jewish believer like the Apostle Paul prior to his conversion would say that according to the law, I was blameless. I was a good man. I was without blame. And yet, he says, I was persecuting the church of God. Jesus Christ didn't hold Paul blameless. He didn't hold Paul as a good guy. As a matter of fact, on the road to Damascus, when he was struck down before the Lord, the Lord spoke to him and said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He says, who art thou, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And then a change began in Paul's life. What was this? Well, this was this quickening experience. Paul was given life, and with that life came a certain degree of knowledge, of understanding. A reality that he was on the wrong path. An understanding that something had to change. And it's there that the change of Paul's life began. In the Roman letter, Paul writes to a church that is confused, a church that is divided. They've received the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've repented from their sins and they've turned to follow after him. But the church is comprised of two different distinct classes of people and really more than that, subclasses considered. The church at Rome, Rome was a metropolitan city. There were people from all over the world gathered together there, most of them coming from a pagan background and no concept of the God of Scripture and of creation. But then there were in Rome Jewish believers, people who had the oracles of God, who understood the ceremonial law. They had received the law of God, and they believed that they were indeed the people of God. So Paul writes the Roman letter, which is our biblical basis for systematic theology. It's Paul's explanation 
of what we as Christians believe, of what the gospel teaches and of how salvation is accomplished. Not only that, it gives us practical instruction how we as Christians ought to behave ourselves in this life that we live. But beginning in chapter 1 of the Roman letter, Paul sets forth the principle that all men before God have a responsibility to believe in God. Gentiles who have not received the law of God, God's revelation of himself, are yet accountable to God because creation itself reveals his power, his Godhead. Reveals that he exists and that he is the ruler of the dominion that he's created. In chapter 2, Paul turns his attention first to the Jewish believers. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. But we're sure the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. There that word deeds means works. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing, again works, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law, without law, shall perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. We'll stop there for a moment. What Paul's got under consideration here is you Jews who think that you're the people of God. You Jews who think that God owes you something and that you're better than these Gentiles. You need to think again. Because God's no respecter of persons. God doesn't care what your heritage is. God doesn't care who your father was. He doesn't care what your lineage is and who you can point to that was a great man of faith. You see, the Jews said, we have Abraham to our father. Jesus says, I can raise up of these stones, children, to Abraham. You're not special because of your nativity. You're not special because of your ethnicity. God's no respecter of persons. There's no respect of persons with God. God has respect to what? God has respect to the love that he has for individuals. And Paul will go on to explain that as he moves forward in his theology. But the lesson for these Jews is regarding their works. You see, they're boasting in the law and their ability to keep the law. And yet Jesus Christ has already revealed to us that you've paid great attention to make sure that you pay tithes of every spice in your spice cabinet. You've made sure that you've given a tenth of all that you have. And in this you say you've kept the law. But Jesus says you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. You've lost all judgment. You've got no mercy. You've got no love for the people of God. 
And Jesus says, this condemns you, though you think you're righteous. Jesus says in the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel, as he preaches the first recorded lengthy sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, except your righteousness, your good works, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, who were the most righteous people on the earth in their estimation, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no place for you in relationship with Jesus Christ. And this makes evident we can't come to Christ by our works. Our works do not endear us to God. However, Paul does highlight here a responsibility and a role of works. You see, externally imposed rules, which essentially is what the law was and is, they will not endear anyone to God, nor will they bring about true holiness, true righteousness. People can be made to do that which they don't want to do. And the Jews, the Jewish religion, had established a structure whereby people were forced into obedience because it was a social expectation, it was a requirement. And that is what the Galatian church desired to enact as well. Paul writes the Galatian letter what? confronting them about their legalism. Their desire to establish righteousness in their congregation by a rule of law. Paul condemns it. He doesn't condemn the good works, but he condemns the method by which they're brought about. Because what that does is turns good works into evil works. Good works motivated by anything other than a changed heart are no good works at all. And that's what Paul has under consideration here. He says, you Jews, you stand in your righteousness, righteousness, which is according to the law, and you sit in judgment of all those who fail to measure up to that standard. But he says, you're guilty of the same things. Why? Because their heart is far from God. The heart matters, in this case, more than the head. I recently read a question that was asked that I thought was very, uh, very appropriate. Which is more difficult? To do something that you don't want to do or to believe something that you don't believe? Think about that for a moment. I do things I don't want to do all the time. I'm compelled to do things I don't like, I don't want to do. There's all kinds of things that can compel me to do it. There are things the law requires me to do that I don't want to do. Taxation is theft, but I pay my taxes. Why? Because the government requires it of me. I don't want to do it. I do things at work that I would rather not do. I'm required to do it. The job requires it. The customer wants it. I argue with a customer and say, this isn't how you should do things. This is a bad design. The customer says, I know you're an expert, but I don't care. I want it done this way. I do what I don't want to do. We can be compelled to do that which we don't want to do. But it's impossible, for me at least, to imagine believing something that I simply don't believe. And belief is a matter of the heart. It's an internal matter. People all the time say they believe something when they really don't believe it. But to say I believe does not mean I do believe. It's impossible to believe what you don't believe. And the Jewish nation, their national existence is proof of this concept throughout their history. The Old Testament scripture reveals it. Oh yes, they 
professed belief in the God of heaven, a God who ruled. And yet they turned their back on him again and again and began to worship false gods. Why? Because they didn't really believe. And you know, really, in in my own experience, my own life, I question sometimes my belief. I believe a God is all-powerful. I believe in a God who is sovereign. I believe in a God who has called me to obedience and has given me his word and his commands in my life. And yet I find myself doing the things that I would not do, that I should not do. What does that say? That says to that degree I don't believe in that God's authority, in that God's power, and in that God's promises. Well, Paul here confronts these Jews who think they stand in their righteousness and their good works. He tells them your good works are really not good at all. And then he speaks to the heart of the matter in verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. There's a parenthetical expression we just read, so verse 16 does really connect directly to verse 12. God is the judge, and God is going to judge not the external deeds, but also the secrets of the hearts of men. He's going to judge them by Jesus Christ. He's going to judge them according to the gospel. He continues on, behold, you're called a Jew and you rest in the law and you make your boast of God. You know his will and you approve the things that are more excellent because you've been instructed out of the law. You're confident that you are a guide of the blind and a light of them which are in darkness. But in all of this, he says, you err and all of this you mistake because you make your boast in the law while breaking the law and dishonoring God. He says you're more guilty than the very people you condemn. Finally, he concludes the chapter with this observation, this statement. He is not a Jew, that is a person of God, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. He says your boasting is vain. Your trust in the law is vain. Your trust in your works that you do is vain. Because he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. What's he saying? Okay, divided church. Church with Jews and with Gentiles in your membership. He says your relationship is reset. You are all the people of God. There's an equality here. You all stand alike before God. Why? Because you all are circumcised. Not in the flesh as the Jews were compelled to be, but in the heart. You have this quickening work of God, this Holy Spirit work, which has made you one in Jesus Christ. And then Paul is free to command obedience. But obedience not to the law, obedience to the gospel. Because the gospel conveys a greater message of obedience than the law. The gospel is more than a list of rules. No, the gospel says be like Christ. Be holy as I am holy. That was contained in the law. 
But the holiness of God is not properly understood apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, he continues on discussing the, the justifying work of the atonement of Jesus Christ, the propitiation we have in Jesus Christ. In concluding that chapter, he says this, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Verse 28. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it's one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Verse 27 that we missed here says, where is boasting then? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. The consideration here is, as Paul, or the author of the Hebrew letter, expresses in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. We need to understand that principle. Without faith, God cannot be pleased. And where does faith come from? Faith itself is a gift of God. Why is it that some believe and others don't believe? You see, faith is not merely a matter of the mind, a matter of persuasion. No greater preacher ever lived than Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ never failed to clearly express any point he desired to make. And Jesus Christ preached to multitudes of people. He declared his gospel. He declared his godhood. He declared his power, his glory, his saving efficacy. Jesus Christ declared the gospel in perfection. And yet thousands and thousands of people turned and walked away. You remember John chapter 6. Jesus fed a multitude. They were there assembled to hear him speak. He began to preach his own gospel. He declared, I am the bread of life. He declared, no one can come to the Father but by me. He declared, unless you eat my flesh, unless you partake of my blood, unless you're in union with me, you can never approach to the Father. And the multitude turned away. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Jesus turns to his disciples. Will you also go away? He asks. Peter speaking for the disciples. says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. There was a difference. What was the difference? They all heard the same message. They all heard the same word. If it was a matter of persuasion, I submit to you, Jesus Christ would have converted every person he ever spoke to. But that wasn't the case. Jesus said, you believe not because you are not of my sheep. You believe not because you are of your father, the devil. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Why did they not come? Because they had not been quickened by the Holy Spirit. Because they had not been called. Because they were left in the condition in which they were found. As Jesus spoke to them, ye shall die in your sins. The reality is... The calling 
of God is a great blessing. It is a grace of God. And that grace of God is worked out in our lives as he continues his work in us. The Holy Spirit's work doesn't stop in regeneration. And that's made clear in Ephesians 2. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, but he doesn't leave you alive without any instruction, without any knowledge. As Jesus was preparing for his crucifixion, the last day of his life, as he journeys with his disciples to the garden where he's to be arrested and condemned and crucified, he tells them, if I go not away, the comforter will not come. But if I go away, I will not leave you comfortless. I will give you another comforter, the Holy Ghost. And when he has come, he will lead you. He will instruct you. He will teach you in all righteousness. He'll teach you the way that you ought to go. He'll teach you the word of God. This comforter is going to fill fill a place in your lives that will be a sanctifying role. John 16, let's read this this verse together. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth in verse 7. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say to you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. He will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. The promise of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is a promise that is sustained, that's remaining. The Holy Spirit works. And the Holy Spirit's work is a work not just of quickening, but a work of sanctification. Of drawing us ever nearer to Him. And drawing out of us works that magnify Christ in us. The Apostle Paul writing to the Philippian church. A church that's in distress. A church that's being persecuted. A church that's in trouble in many ways. He writes to this congregation and he says, he says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. I pray for you always in every prayer of mine, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What's he say? God's begun a good work in you. God's begun a work of transformation in you. And certainly God has all power. Were God to choose, he could speak and we would be instantly perfected, instantly transformed. But that's not the way the scripture reveals he works. He which hath begun a good work in you. That work in us begins the moment the spirit calls us to life in Jesus Christ. But that work is continued. That work is perfected. And that work is often a slow and steady work. 
But he says that work will be completed. It will be continued. It will be performed until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says the Holy Spirit's work is active. He's working to convert. He's working to bring to faith. Working to bring to completion the grace of God in the lives of these believers. In the Colossian letter. We read in verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor striving according to his working which worketh in me mightily. Paul says the gospel is a means by which God brings people to perfection. He completes this work. He shows us, gives us understanding. This morning we talked about the authority of the scriptures, the, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, the word of God. They're the foundation for every Christian life. They're the foundation of understanding and they're that which God uses to draw us ever nearer to him in obedience. In the book of Titus, chapter 2, the author here writing of the grace of God. Verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Here he says the grace of God teaches us to do that which is right. Teaches us the value of good works. Compels us to obedience in an active way. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Notice, as I think we've noticed together before here. He says Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Speaking of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us, but here he doesn't focus on the legal work of atoning for our sins. He doesn't focus on our justification before God, being made right with God, delivered from his wrath. Instead, he focuses on the sanctifying work that results from the Sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from iniquity. That is, buy us back, pull us, draw us back from iniquity, from evil works, from evil thoughts, from everything evil within us, to draw us back from iniquity. He gave himself for us that he might purify to himself a peculiar people, that he might make us different from the world in which we live. Jesus said, I... I Send you out into the world, but you're not of the world. To purify to himself a peculiar people. He gave himself for us that we might be zealous of good works. To do good works, to be zealous of good works, they're two separate things entirely. Externally compelled good works maybe have the appearance of being good. They may be valuable to some extent in society. Law is a good thing. God's ordained law. Why? So that, uh, that sinners might be restrained. But good works, externally compelled, 
never are done with zeal. Zealous of good works, that is passionately desiring good works. Desiring to do the right thing. Why? Because it's mandated? No, because it's the right thing. Desiring to be like Christ. Why? Because we love Jesus Christ. Because Christ is our goal. He's our our desire. He's what we want. The gospel minister is commanded, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In all of its clarity. In all of its simplicity. We're not to apologize for the sovereign grace of a sovereign God. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is the work of God alone. Through Christ alone. Everyone who he loves, he quickens, he calls. Everyone for whom Christ died will be completely conformed to his image, will one day know him even as they are known. We are secure in the blood of Jesus Christ. But in that knowledge, there's no relief of responsibility. In that knowledge, there's no relief of obligation. But the Christian life and the gospel is not about doing what's necessary in order to find our way to heaven when we die. No, it's quite different than that. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking of the blessings that would come upon those weak and downtrodden and those disfavored in society. He then says to the believing multitude, you are the salt of the earth. You're a seasoning, a preserving influence. You're valuable. Salt in the Lord Jesus Christ's day was a much more valuable commodity than we recognize it to be today. Today there's a war against salt. Maybe that's turning around. People say it causes high blood pressure. It kills people. We recognize the value of salt on our food because it gives it better taste, better flavor. But in the day of Jesus Christ, and really up until refrigeration became prominent, salt was necessary to preserve meat. And unless you were planning on slaughtering your animals and eating them within a day or two, you had to put salt on the meat. You had to pack it in salt, preserve it in salt, wash it off and cook it at a later time. Salt was a valuable commodity. It was needed. It was needed as a preservative. It was needed as a seasoning. And Jesus says to his people, the believers, you are the salt of the earth. But he follows that up by saying, if the salt has lost its savor, its usefulness, lost its its intrinsic qualities that make it a preservative, that make it flavorful, if the salt has lost its savor, He says it's of no use. Salt has lost its savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? Thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. 
There's no value. Taken literally, what Jesus says is, you're salt. You're valuable. You mean something. But if you do not do what you're meant to do, you're good for nothing. You might as well be cast out. The reality is that born-again children of God, we can live our lives in a state of uselessness in the kingdom. Being of no value in this life. And that's a terrible place to be. And the gospel compels us. It commands us. It calls us to be valuable, to be useful, to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And that's a worthwhile endeavor. It matters. To those who know him, it matters more than anything. The Hebrew letter, chapter 12. Having reflected upon the faith of those who have lived and died in faith. And what they've meant to the world and to history and to believers who look back upon them. Chapter 12 begins, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. He says it matters what I do. Even though I'm saved, even though I'm a child of the king, even though Christ died for me and my salvation in Jesus Christ is secure, it matters what I do with this life that I've been given. Let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside the sin which is always at our door. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Patience needs to be emphasized there. Keep plodding along. Keep going forward. Run with patience the race before us. And verse 2 says, don't take your eyes off of Jesus Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider what he endured. Consider what he has done. And consider what he's accomplished and where he stands today. Jesus Christ is so much more than a role model, but he is a role model. He is a standard by which we ought to evaluate our own lives, our own obedience. He says, you haven't yet resisted to blood. What are you complaining about? Christ gave his life. What have you given? We sang that song this morning. I gave my life for you. What have you done for me? The gospel commands an ever greater degree of obedience, an ever greater degree of sacrifice. The Apostle Paul never apologizes for the commands of obedience. He never apologizes for the works that are set forth in the gospel. But he does say don't trust in those works and recognize that every good work, every good thing is a grace of God. It's God in you. We need to recognize that when we've done everything that we can do, to the best of our ability, we're like the unprofitable servant that Jesus speaks of in Luke's gospel. You've done what was required of you. 
And by God's grace, the God who requires obedience, the God who commands good works, gives the ability to perform those works. He gives us the direction we need. So that in the end of the day, there is no boasting. I can't say, look what I did. I can't say it about the deeds that I've done. I can't say it about the things that I've believed. To illustrate that point, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you've received it, then why are you proud about it? Why are you boasting in it? He says, you say, we believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, we followed him and we are the church of Jesus Christ says you're too puffed up. You're too proud of your doings. Too proud of your faith. You believe because Jesus Christ revealed himself to you. You followed him because he enabled you and called you. And everything that you have is a gift of his grace. So it redounds to his glory. On the flip side of that, what about our disobedience? What about our failures to follow? Our failures to submit to the will, the purpose, the calling of God. What about that? Oh, we get all the credit we want for that. We're responsible for our failures. The Apostle Paul struggles. Romans chapter 7 reveals the struggle of this great man of God. He says, when I would do good, evil is present with me. That which I would do, I do not. That which I would not do, I do. I find there's a law within my members. But when I would do good, evil is present with me. I'm in a great, troublesome fix. So where does he rest? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I have deliverance is embodied in that statement. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There's a conflict that exists. How do we overcome? How do we win in this battle with ourselves? I don't know about you, but with me, the greatest enemy that I have is myself. I know to do good, but all too often I do it not. Why is that? There's a conflict within. Where do I find the victory? I find it in Jesus Christ. In the Revelation letter we read, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. I look to Christ. I trust Him. We believe Him. We don't rest in our own works. We don't even rest in our own belief. You know, I've always puzzled at those who say, professing the doctrines of sovereign grace, there's nothing you have to do. All you have to do is believe. I don't know about you, I see a contradiction in that statement. There's nothing you have to do. All you have to do is believe. If it's something you have to do, then it's a deed. But Jesus Christ gives faith. 
He gives the capacity to see, to know, to believe. And that does compel a response. And with the gift of God, which comes in that regenerating, quickening work, there is a capacity to see and understand that which could not be seen before. In the Corinthian letter, chapter 2, Paul writes and says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to the natural man. He cannot receive them because they're spiritually discerned. But he says not so for us. The natural man, verse 14, chapter 2, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually understood or discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Where does that come from? Earlier in the chapter we read, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak. Not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So what I'm saying is even... For our very knowledge of Jesus Christ, our reception of the gospel, we're dependent on the work of Christ, on his grace. It's his grace throughout all things. It's the grace of God that brings you and me to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God that enables us to understand what righteousness is. It's the grace of God which gives us the strength to choose to do that which is right on each occasion that we do so. It's God who gets the credit. It's God who gets the glory. There is no boasting. And that compels a continual service, service to Christ, to the gospel, to God. I don't know about you again, but in my life, whenever I get to a point where I've accomplished my goal, I've done whatever it is I thought to do, I've finished a particular work, I want to sit back and rest in that and maybe boast in it a little bit. I've accomplished something. I want some acknowledgement of what I've accomplished, what I've done. That's a natural tendency, I think, in men. And when it applies to our service to God, we all too often do the same thing. When we begin to think that I have done anything for God, I've done anything in His service, I've accomplished something and I want to get some credit for it. I want it acknowledged. Invariably, what we do is stop what we're doing. We stop serving Him. We stop actively working. I've seen that in churches. The church that I was a member of as a child growing up. We had a great goal. We were going to relocate from one area of town to another. We were going to build a building, a nice church building to, to honor God in, to worship in. And we came together as a congregation and we labored on that task and for years we worked together at it. We purchased the property. We cleared the property. We built the building with our own hands as a congregation. 
We completed that work of building and an attitude of what next kind of settled upon us. We had a great big dedication meeting. Hundreds of people came to worship with us and thank God for the building we built. And as a congregation, we were kind of lost without direction. What now? You see, we wanted to rest for a little while on our success, on our laurels, on what we had accomplished. And yeah, with our mouths, we gave God the glory. But in our hearts, we'd done what we intended to do. So what next? And that began a decline in the service of many in our membership, of our church as a whole. Because our eyes were taken off the work for a little while. We thought we would rest. There's scripture for that. King David, through much suffering for many years, running from the powers that were in charge, running from Saul, whom God had appointed him to replace as king of Israel, David was faithful in serving God. He was victorious in warfare. He was a mighty man of God, leading an army of mighty men of God. And when the smoke had cleared and he was anointed king, the army went out to war. And David said, I'm the king. I've got generals to handle my fighting for me. I'm going to stay home in the city of God in my palace. And we all know the story. Walking on the roof of his palace, he beholds a beautiful young woman. He calls for her finds out that she's the wife of one of his mighty men. But he's enticed. He takes her. He then murders her husband, covering one sin with another sin. And suffers unimaginable pain as a consequence of his actions. What was the initial sin? What was the great error? The great error was much like Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He looked around and he said, I've attained something. Look at this great nation that I've built. Look at the people adoring me. Look at the people congratulating me. And none of us are in a position of royalty or even political authority. But in our own lives, we feel a sense of accomplishment. We say, look what I've done. And invariably, that pride begins to rise up in us and we find ourselves immediately knocked down. Hopefully to a place on our faces where we're able to look up and acknowledge God. But we're commanded serve, we're commanded to obey, but commanded to give him glory in all things. Recognize, as the Apostle Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Whatever I am, it's God's grace. Anything good in me, it's God's grace. Any good work, it's what Jesus Christ has worked in me. Because as our text says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good work which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Oh, we ought to do good works. But let us never think that our works define us and our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
It's not our doings that make us his. It's his sovereign will, his sovereign grace, his sovereign choice. And it's the work of Jesus Christ who came and suffered and died on the cross that he might redeem us from iniquity, that he might purify us, that he might give us a zeal for good works. And it's Jesus Christ who ultimately is coming again. He's coming again to receive us to himself and to finish that work. The scripture is very clear. In regeneration, there is a quickening, there is a part of man that is perfected in the image of Christ. But we're still saddled with this this flesh and all of the troubles that it brings to us. But there's a day coming when the body itself is going to be transformed and be made like unto his glorious body. When the body is going to be quickened and glorified. And the Apostle John says, we don't even know what we're going to be. But we know that we'll be like him. And that's enough. That's our destination. We're called to look to him. To look to him and to seek him. On Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 in closing, the Apostle Paul preaching to a mixed multitude of unbelievers and those who are interested in learning what the Christian doctrine and theology teaches. He says, God made all men of one blood of all nations upon the face of this earth. God is God over all the earth. The same God that made men has called men. He's called now all men everywhere to repent. But in the midst of that, notice what he says. He's made all men, all nations of men of one blood, to dwell on all the face of the earth and have to determine the times before appointed. This is Acts 17, 26. And the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Understand what he's saying. God is near to everyone. God's everywhere present, nowhere absent. God is right here with us this morning. He's present everywhere at all times. He's not far from every one of us. But he says God made men that they might seek after God. Seeking is an action of men. They might seek after him if happily they might feel after him. You see, every man doesn't feel after God. That feeling that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the quickening work. But he doesn't leave us in that infantile state. We're called to seek, to seek after him. And we're promised that we will find him. How will we find him? Because he doesn't hide himself from those whom he's called. And in the gospel, he's revealed himself. So much, so clearly. It's an all-sufficient rule. It's an all-sufficient message. It's a message he's committed to you and to I. And in doing so, we're commanded to obey. I appreciate your attention this morning. I pray the Lord would would take his word and would apply it uh, to our lives in a very real way. I pray that it hasn't confused any issues, but rather brought brought understanding and light to it. And we together might draw nearer to him in our service.